Well, good morning. It's my privilege to welcome you to worship here at Central on this first Sunday of our new year. And I want to invite you to join us in this journey of seeking transformation. I want to see the Lord change our lives, our communities, and the whole world by the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite you into that journey with us here at Central. If you were here with us last fall, we studied a, a sermon series called Life by Design where we examine what does it mean for us to be made in God's image and how do we, how do we carry ourselves and uh, treat one another having been made in the image of God. We're going to continue that Life by Design series this spring, this winter and spring up to Easter, and ask this question, a little bit of a twist on it. What does it look like when image bearers of God band together to build a community? What does it look like when we begin to treat one another in this way, when we function together and live together and flourish alongside one another as image bearers of God? What does that look like? And God's answer to that question is it looks like when the Ten Commandments are put into place, how His law regulates our community with one another. But others in our world aren't quite so sure about those Ten Commandments. Way back in 1992, James Patterson and Peter Kim wrote a book that was titled, The Day America Told the Truth. And that book was an exploration of whether there was any longer any sense of moral consensus in our nation as Americans. And their conclusion was that there isn't. There isn't a shared moral consensus in our nation all the way back in 1992. In fact, they said that everyone makes up their own personal moral codes, their own Ten Commandments. That was borne out statistically. Way back in 1992, they found that 93% of Americans said that nobody else determines what is and what is not moral for their lives. 93% of people. If it was true in 1992, I don't know what the statistic would be right now. The question for us is, who sets our moral code? Who's responsible for directing our moral compass as a people? Specifically, as the people of God, how do we have our moral compass set? God's answer, our creator and redeemer's answer is summarized in the Ten Commandments. They set our moral compass, how to live in this life and know what is right and what is wrong. But so much of that feels out of date, doesn't it? I mean, even the language feels out of date. No one likes to talk about commands or commandments these days. Nobody likes to be commanded to do anything because we would rather be a law unto ourselves. We'd rather belong to ourselves and behave as if we are the masters of our own domain and nobody else has any input into it whatsoever. It's especially true if one giving a command or offering a command feels less loving than I feel myself about this situation. In our world, it seems common to set law and love in opposition to each other. Our world trains us to think in so many ways that love and law are antithesis because we sometimes define love as permission to do whatever you want with whomever you want, whenever you want. But the Bible's view is that law and love aren't in opposition, but rather law and love are allies. They work together. In fact, God's commands teach us exactly how it is best that we love one another, how we treat one another laid out for us in the way that God designed and made his world. All of that brings us to the story of the Exodus. You may have heard the story many times, how God delivered his people, 
how he intervened with his people to free them from slavery, to give them, to, to give them their own land, a, a God that, 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 that set them free from, from uh, a tyrant, set them free from even their own sin as they saw. 19 chapters of Exodus, it's that rehearsal. 19 chapters of what God has done to save and deliver. It's not until chapter 20 where God lays out his commands for how we live as his people. His salvation, his grace first, his instruction, his commands come to people who know him. What would the Lord say to us? We who are his beloved saved people as he begins to instruct you and me. We have been delivered from slavery to our sin by the death of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, who, t- who was slain for us. What would God say for us as we begin to study his instruction for life? Let's pray as we turn our attention to Exodus chapter 20. Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit and open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to hear Jesus. Help us to embrace this beautiful music of your gospel that we might be set free to live for you. So Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Hear God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Why should we care about the Ten Commandments? Ever think about that question? Why, why are they relevant in 2024? I mean, Sometimes if you've been around church for a while, you've heard that the Old Testament people were under law, but now we're under grace. Does God's law have any purpose in our lives right now? Purpose in your life today? The answer to that question is an emphatic yes. And our verses today give us examples and reasons why God's law has a purpose in our lives today. If you notice, there aren't any commands in verses 1 or 2 of Exodus 20. They're called most often the prologue or the preamble to the Ten Commandments and set for us a context for for you and I to understand why we must listen to what God says here. Why Why should we listen to the instruction for life that God gives us? He gives us two really good reasons here in these verses. The first reason is this. Our creator is our liberator. Our creator is our liberator. The one who made us is also the one who has saved and delivered us. Look again at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. The word for God there goes all the way back to Genesis 1. When the God who fashioned us in his image made us to be like him. And as Psalm 100 says, he made us, we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We belong to him. The one who designed us to be like him, who fashioned us to live in his ways, in his world that he made. So we listen to him in this sense for the same reason that we follow an instruction manual for some complicated doodad that we might have just acquired. God made us and he knows how best we are to live in the thing that he designed, the world that he made. He knows how best our lives are supposed to work. 
So that's why dads especially are very quick to read the instruction manual when we put something together, right? Uh, Probably not so quick, right? There's something wrong inside of us. It's called a sinful nature. There's something wrong inside of us that pushes back against any instruction, pushes back against any manual, any instruction, any design for how we're supposed to live life in God's world. We tend to think, I know best. I'm going to live my life the way that I know, to live the way that satisfies me. Even if I don't really know, I'm at least going to act like I know, right? I remember when Emma was very little. She was maybe four years old. Uh, before we moved back here the first time, uh, when we just got here, we bought Emma a swing set for Christmas. Now, I don't know if you've ever put together a swing set, but it's not as simple as it appears to be. Um, I thought to myself, I have a genetic engineering degree. I don't need to read this manual. I can just pitch these instructions to the side. I know how things fit. I understand systems. So I'm just going to put it together. I don't need all those instructions. So I started assembling the pieces I thought they were supposed to fit. What I didn't know is that the crossbar at the top of a swing set where all the swings hang down from, you have to put it together in a certain order and have the pieces with certain orientation or else the the swings don't hang the right distance apart. They get crisscrossed. I didn't know that. (laughs) And I didn't figure that out until after I'd already put the whole swing set together and hung up the chains ready for Emma to use her new fly swing set and it didn't work. No place to put the hooks where the swing would actually function as it was supposed to. If I'd only been humble enough to read the instructions and assemble it as its designer had intended it to be assembled, I would have been saved a lot of a headache. But instead, I had to take the whole thing apart and start over again from scratch. But this time, I looked at the instruction manual. It's not just about swing sets. There's something broken inside all of us. It's called a sinful nature. It's inside all of us ever since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve decided not to listen to God's commands when he prohibited them of eating of the tree of knowing good and evil. That is knowing in the sense of determining for myself what is good and what is evil. I will decide for myself what is a blessing in my life and what I should turn away from in my life. And friends, that's the essence of our sinful condition. It's the essence of our nature and our our sin. In our sin, we think that God doesn't have a right to tell me what to do. God doesn't have a right to tell me how to live. He doesn't have a right to tell me what is good for me versus what is bad for me. I can figure that out on my own. I know myself what will bring blessing into my life and what will bring harm to my life. I don't need to listen to what God has to say. It's a manifestation of our sinful nature. To push away from instruction, push away from from command, push away from design for how God made us. But the truth is we do belong to God. He did design us. He has made us. And the truth is God is our creator, our designer, but that doesn't mean that we listen to him very well all that much. Which just leads us to the second reason we find here when we must listen to God's commands. Not only is he our creator, but look at verse 2. This Lord your God brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Our creator is also our liberator. 
the one who made us is also the one who delivers and, and saves us. The one who made us is the one who scoops you out of the enslavement to sin and death that you and I live in and brought us to himself. That's why we listen to his commands. So that's the story of the Exodus. God's people have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And he heard the cries of his people, the cries, Lord, save us, deliver us from this tyrant, deliver us from these conditions. And finally, he sent Moses to go call Pharaoh to let my people go. And the Lord had told Moses his personal name, his covenant name from the, in the burning bush. He said, I am the Lord. And that's that all caps you see in verse 2. The all caps, whenever it's in English, capital L-O-R-D, that's a translation of God's covenant name. His personal name, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. I will be whom I will be, meaning I'm eternal, I'm sovereign. I'm the one who determines what is right and wrong. I'm the one who is powerful enough to rule over all creation, including I am the one who can keep my promises to my people. Strong enough, powerful enough to keep the promises I make. And so as God heard his cries of his people to free us from the Egyptians who enslave us, and Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, they refused to believe, refused to hear the word of God. And the Lord brought the series of plagues on the people of Egypt. You remember, it comes down to the very last plague when Pharaoh refused to let God's people go, refused to listen to that word of the Lord, and God called the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and place the blood over the doorpost in their homes, remember? And so when the angel of death would pass over and bring judgment in Egypt that night, he would pass over their homes that are covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. You see, God's people have been set free from judgment through faith, through believing the promise, believing the word of the Lord that he would save them, that he would deliver them. And also they were set free from their slavery to sin, their slavery to, to Pharaoh, all by the work of God. They didn't have any part of it. God is the one who delivered his people from their terrible condition. They didn't free themselves from slavery. God liberated them. God freed them from the power of darkness. God freed them from slavery to sin so that they would have a place in a kingdom belonging to God. To be sure, that's the answer of all of God's people. Why do we listen to God's commands? Not only did he make us, but he saved us. He's delivered us from that enslavement to sin. It was true in Egypt. It's true for you and for me now. We are also freed from our slavery to sin and an exodus out of the bondage to sin through Jesus, the Messiah who has come. As a matter of fact, the apostle Paul calls Jesus Christ our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5. He is the one who has brought us out at the cost of his own life, the price of his own blood, the Lamb of God shed for the forgiveness of all of our sins. None of Israel free themselves from their slavery to sin by their own effort, and that includes you and me as well. The Apostle Paul also said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works or obedience, so that no one may boast. 
The Lord our God, the covenant God, Yahweh, in coming to us in Jesus the Son is our liberator and he has set us free from slavery to our sin through his bloody cross. He gave his life for us as our Passover lamb once and for all to forgive us for all of our sin. And he's conquered it all. He defeated all of our sin and death and even evil itself and the resurrection from the grave. His tomb is empty. Because Jesus is alive, victoriously alive, and he ascended to heaven. He rules over all from the throne. He did it all. We are free from slavery because of what God has done. And here's the point of God reminding his people of this here. 19 chapters and then chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. God is the one who's delivered his people by his mercy and his grace. His grace comes first, and then he gives his commands. It's out of an undeserved deliverance from all of our sin flow God's gracious commands and instructions about how to live in his world. Because Jesus has set us free from the guilt of our sin through his cross, he also sets us free to live for him in holiness as his children. We've been set free that we might belong to him. Our creator is also our liberator. It's one reason we listen to God's commands. The second reason follows is that our liberator is also our lawgiver. The one who set us free is also the one who gives us instructions about how to live in his world, how to thrive, how to flourish in his creation. Our liberator is also our lawgiver. You know Martin Luther, the colorful leader of the Reformation in the 16th century, a powerful teacher, it was once when Luther was speaking to his students about this idea, this free offer of the gospel, that we are saved not by our obedience, not by what we've done for God, but we are saved simply through putting our faith and our trust in Jesus who has come. The work of Jesus, the work of Jesus alone saves us. Luther was expounding that idea, and one of his students responded, if what you say is true, that we're saved by Jesus' work and not ours, then we may live in whatever way we want. What do you think? Is that student right? Is that the way the gospel really works? Here's how Luther responded. He answered, yes, you were right. Now what do you want? That's the real question. What do you want? What he means by this is that the gospel of God's grace is able to do something for you and for me that law and commandment can never do. Grace has the power to make us alive to make us alive to God. But law can't do that. Law can't change your heart. God's grace, his free grace by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit is able to give us new hearts and even write his law on our hearts so that obedience to God through the power of the Spirit actually becomes something we delight in, something we want. God has the power to change what we want through his grace to completely redo our hearts but it never works the other direction. You can never obey yourself into a loving relationship with God. You can never be good enough, be obedient enough that on the other end of it, you find yourself loving God. It doesn't work. It never works. It only works with grace first as the Lord makes us alive by his sovereign grace. We are reborn by his grace and then he equips us to live for him. Our liberator 
gives us his law that we might live for him. Romans 1 and 2 pick up on this idea. They teach us that every single person, no matter how wicked this person is, has God's law written on their conscience. Everyone knows the the law of God. It condemns, it kills. The law of God that all of us know because of how we've been made unmasks our hearts. It forces us to look within them and realize what lurks within our hearts. And it makes it, God's law makes it very plain. There is no such thing as salvation by decency. Not ever going to be good enough. I'm not ever going to be a decent enough person. There's no such thing as salvation by being obedient sufficiently. The law shows us our sin. But as believers in Christ, we have the law of God written on our hearts Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, it's written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You see, friends, before we were condemned and cursed by God's commands that we couldn't keep on our own, but now through faith, we've been joined together to Jesus and his righteousness, his obedience is credited as ours. We are righteous because we're joined to Jesus and his spirit is alive within us, enabling us to actually live according to that righteousness. Not perfectly. We'll battle sin the rest of our days. But the one who set us free, the one who gave us new hearts, the one who has the power to write his law upon our hearts, also sends his spirit to enable us to obey and follow what is good and how we should live. You might not be able to tell it in reading the English translation of verse 2, but as God speaks there, he's speaking to his redeemed children. He says, I am the Lord your God. That's the singular. Singular Lord, your. Not y'all. I'm the Lord y'all's God. It's singular, your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you, singular, not y'all, brought you out of the land of slavery. What's God doing there? Why is he making something so personal? He's giving a personal word as a father would speak to his son. And God's people, we are his children. We are his son. As one theologian put it, this is a cosmic father-son talk. God is saying, I am your father and I freed you from slavery to sin and death And now I offer you a new way to live as my son, as my dear daughter, having my character reproduced in your life. That's what the Ten Commandments are. It's God's character given to his blood-bought children so that we live as his image bearers in this world. Live like God in the world that he made. Our liberator has freed us from enslavement to sin so that we can now live in his world in his way. And it only works that way. It's never possible to become a child of God by being obedient enough, trying to be conformed to his ways enough and think that that's going to make him love us as his children. It never works that way. It's a losing goal, friends. I want you to hear me carefully. If you are depending upon your own obedience to give you a sense that God loves you, you're going to live life as a miserably insecure person. Because it never works. 
The commands of God are always just beyond us. We don't, we, God doesn't love us because of how obedient we are. He loves us because we have been saved by Jesus. We are united to Jesus through faith. That whisper that's in your ear, that whisper that says, if you do more, he'll love you better. If you're just a little bit better here, oh man, you can know that you're gonna really have his smile now. He's gonna love me now. It's a lie, friends. And that lie is only silenced by the truth that comes from the cross. It is finished. It's been finished by Jesus. We are loved, deeply loved by our heavenly father because we are covered in the blood of Christ and he has been raised from the dead, victorious over our sin and our shame and our evil. And now he sets us free to seek to live for him as his children, equipping and training us as his dearly loved children how to flourish in his world. And he equips us to know how we live together as his people, as his commands go public. And we live out his commands in front of one another and with one another, governing our lives together. That's what the Ten Commandments are for. The father speaking to his son, our liberator, our lawgiver, so that his character might be worked into our lives and into our community. So when Luther asks his student, what do you want? He's talking to a son who belongs to God. And he's asking, do you want to look like and live like your heavenly father? Is that what you want in this life? And the answer by his grace and the power of his spirit is yes. That's what I want. He's given me a new heart. He's saved me from my enslavement. What I want is to live for him. Live in a way that's gonna bring blessing and flourishing in my life and in the lives of the people around me as I seek to live according to the character of my redeemer. First Peter 2.16 puts it like this. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. The Ten Commandments do. They help us develop a family resemblance to our Heavenly Father. Command may be a bad word in our culture, but God's commands actually set us free to live in a way that we've been designed to live, to experience in blessing. Hear me again very clearly. Living enslaved to your sin will not bring you freedom. You may think it's bringing you freedom. It may feel like freedom for a little while. Nobody tells me what to do. I can do whatever I want. But the truth is you're enslaved to selfishness, enslaved to sinful nature. Living enslaved to our sin will not bring freedom. One theologian put it this way, a community dominated by disrespect for authority in parents by workaholism, by violence, by envy, by theft, and by lies is not free. When we live according to our own ways, we are enslaved to violence and envy and theft and lies and workaholism and disrespect for authority because I have to be right. I must be my own standard bearer. The truth is, friends, that freedom is found in living like our Father. Freedom is found in the boundaries of the commands of our creator and our redeemer. That's where freedom is found. How does it work? 
How does all this law work in our lives and in, in our communities? I'm going to give you three images that we'll return to again and again as we study the Ten Commandments one by one. But these three images help us understand how God's commands work. The first image is that the law is a bridle. You know what a bridle is? A bridle, think about it with a horse. A bridle is something that, that can restrain the horse. You turn it to the right or the left, something that, that controls the horse. And so God's law is like a bridle. The Ten Commandments serve to restrain evil in our society evil in our world. For any society, any community rooted in the commands of God, we see restraint of the evil among us as a people. God's word, God's law serves as a bridle to restrain us, making it very clear murder is wrong, theft is wrong, bearing false witness, lying about people is wrong. And when a community is governed by those laws, Evil among us is restrained a bit. God's law is like a bridle. But in addition to it functioning as a bridle, God's law also serves as a lamp. A lamp lights the way. A lamp shows the path. And God's commands light the path, light the way for living in righteousness in this world. What does it look like for for justice and kindness and righteousness and treating people fairly? What does that look like in in this world? We find it in God's commands. Find it in his law, the best way to live according to God's design. This lamp lights the way of our sanctification. The Bible's word for us growing to be more like Jesus, growing in holiness, living in ways that honor our heavenly father. God's commands are like a bridle to restrain our evil. God's commands are like a lamp to show us the way to live. But also, maybe more importantly, God's commands are also like a mirror. A mirror simply reflects what's standing in front of it, right? And when we see ourselves standing in front of in the light of God's perfect and holy commands, including as the law reveals the things that lurk in our hearts that we don't want to show on the outside, as God's law serves as a mirror for us, we see that we aren't holy, We aren't righteous, we aren't perfect, and we must rush to Jesus, our Redeemer, to find forgiveness and to be set free from enslavement to everything that's lurking in our hearts. The commands of God drive us to Jesus as a mirror to show us our need of his cross where he's taken all of our condemnation and the judgment that we deserve for what is in our hearts and our lives. He's taken it all onto his shoulders and he gives us in exchange forgiveness. He gives us freedom, all a gift of his grace. God's law is like a bridle. It's like a lamp. It's like a mirror. Donald Barnhouse, who was the famous pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia from 1927 through 1960, wrote this. The law of God is like a mirror. Now, the purpose of the mirror is to reveal that your face is dirty, But the purpose of the mirror is not to wash your face. When you look in a mirror and find your face dirty, do you then reach to the mirror, take it off the wall, and rub it on your face as if it were a cleansing agent? No. The purpose of a mirror is to drive you to the water. Friends, the purpose of God's law here for us is to drive us to the living water of the Lord Jesus. Because he's the only one who can cleanse us. 
He's the only one who can wash us clean by his blood. He's the only one who can pay the price for all of our sin, all of the the things that are in our hearts. Jesus is the only one who can bring us life and salvation and cleansing. And he does so no matter who you've been. It doesn't matter how many times a day we all break all 10 of these commandments because we do, every one of us. It doesn't matter how spectacularly you have broken these 10 commandments. Jesus is willing to save and wash clean anyone who comes to him believing that he is our savior. And he takes our sin on himself that we might be forgiven and set free, not only from the guilt of our sin, but begin to be set free from its power and its corruption in our lives. Ten Commandments, the beginning, the prologue, the preamble of the Ten Commandments is a way for God to say to you and to me, come to the living water and find life today. And we'll talk about how you live. We'll talk about that next week. But come to me right now and find life. Have you done that? Are you willing to do it today? Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you have loved us when we have been your enemies. You have loved us when we run away from you, when we've hated you, when we've lived as though you don't have any right to tell us what to do or think or say or behave or any of that. You loved us when we were a law unto ourselves and you've given us life at the cost of the life of your own son. And so, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for all the ways that our sinful nature continues to be expressed. And also set us free, Lord. Set us free from living for self and equip us to live for you. Equip us to live for one another and lay down our preferences, lay down our, the things that we want, lay them down so that we might serve one another as your family. Lord, build us and equip us as your family that expresses your character among us. And may we be like a people who shine a light on the Jesus who saves. Help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.